Welcome to Desperately Seeking the 80s. I am Meg. And I am Jessica. And Meg and I have been friends since 1982. We got through middle school and high school together here in New York City, where we still live. And where we are now podcasting about New York City in the 80s, I focus on rip from the headlines. And I handle pop culture. Shall we, Meg? Let's! So, Jessica... I want to dive into my story because it's actually a rather involved one, and I didn't want to leave out any details. No engagement question? Oh, no, no, no. There'll be a little bit of an engagement question. But before we do that, we have to send a huge thank you and congratulations to Michelle, Kristen, and Sophie, who won our giveaway of the Desperately Seeking the 80s playlist, Volume 1. Yay! That is awesome. And it was so much fun putting this playlist together, which only these three ladies have access to right now. Amazing. I know, right? VIP. And it's so good. Yes, I'm aware of that. You outdid yourself. I I have to admit, I I had not a single (laughs) correction. I was so blown away. I was shocked. I thought thought you would be so opinionated. Anyway, so I'm also, now I'm looking forward to volume two, but one thing at a time. Wait, speaking, I I learned something today really quickly. Yeah. About, this is 80s music. I just read that Boy George was in Bow Wow Wow. Huh. And he left because Vivian Westwood wouldn't let him dress himself. Oh, she wanted to be his. Well, Malcolm McLaren managed Bow Wow Wow, and Uh Malcolm McLaren had Vivian Westwood do the clothing for any band that he was managing. And so Boy George was like, I think not. Yeah, I'm my own stylist, but thanks. Yep. So you might remember, Jessica, that last week I talked about the Tompkins Square Park riot. Oh, my God. So this is part two. Oh, I know it's been a busy week for you, so you might not have remembered that, but now oh, I am. I suddenly I'm, remember. Oh my right. God, I'm so excited. So, my engagement question is what was your biggest takeaway from the discussion about Tompkins Square Park? Did you have memories? Was Were there things that you remembered about the riot? I don't know. Did you learn things? Well, this is sort of, it's literally Thompson Square Park. Thompson? What did I just Tom- say? Tompkins. Tompkins. Hi, have we met? My name is Jessica Jones. It's very nice to meet you. I live in New York. Like the Who Thompson am I? Twins. I was, that's, yes, get it, out of my It's the head. culture club that it was exactly distracted right. you for a minute. I'm feeble. <laughs> it's sad. So in the 90s, I used to run around in that neighborhood, and you lived there, and I learned something very important about do you remember the club Niagara that's right on the corner of Tompkins? I don't, I can't say that I do. Anyway. But Maybe then, if I looked at the So this building. has to do with the, the drug issues oh. in that park. So it was so much a part of the culture of that area that it affected, you know, life generally in that area. And I remember I was trying to, I had been at Niagara dancing and getting stupid until like two in the morning, something really, you know, like I should, I needed to get a cab and go home. And um, all these cab drivers were just whizzing past, even though they had their lights on. I was like, what the hell is going on? So finally, someone stopped for me. And I was like, why does no one stop here? And he said, too many drug addicts, too much cocaine coming out of that club. There are too many violent people. 
getting into our taxis. So no one stops near Tompkins Square Park. It's so interesting because these neighborhoods are just not far away from each other, but every single one has its own identity based on what year you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So that's my, that was what it reminded me of. Okay. Well, today I'm going to tell a story that happened exactly one year after the riot. So the riot happened in 1988. And this happened exactly one year after, and over a very brief period of time, I want you to keep that in mind, two months mm-hmm. from beginning to end. My Really, my only source is a Village Voice article that was written in 1989. I went on Wikipedia just to fill in some gaps, but this was an extensive article. Okay. All right. When Sylvia first met Daniel... She and her boyfriend, Sean, were living in a tiny two-bedroom at 700 East 9th Street in Avenue C, a block east of Tompkins Square Park, if you can picture. The couple had just moved from Morris Plains, New Jersey, and they met Daniel Rakowitz. Sounds about right. I think Rakowitz. Yeah. Okay. I'll go with it. A 28-year-old part-time cook when he sold them pot. A year and a half later... And this is when our little timeline begins, our two-month timeline. In July 1989, Sylvia and Sean ran into Daniel in Tompkins Square, and he told them he was sleeping in the park. He offered to cover half of Sylvia and Sean's $500 a month rent, so they invited him to move in. Nowadays, that apartment goes for $2,600 a month. Damn. After a couple of years of being homeless, Daniel was delighted to have a kitchen. In the mornings, he would head to the key food on 4th and B and ask strangers to buy him chicken, potatoes, butter, bread, vegetables. He would return to the apartment with 40 pounds of food, cook it all up, and bring it to Tompkins Square Park to feed the homeless people living there in tents. He'd do this two to three times a week. He was kind and generous to the displaced people there. He knew what it felt like to not have a home. He also had other personality traits. He was obsessed with watching television and introduced himself as the Lord of Lords. Well, isn't that sort of a bit of a (laughs) tip-off? That's like bad roommate material. (laughs) According to Sylvia, he said, quote, By 1996, I'm going to be president. And by 1992, my followers are going to take over. And if they think Hitler was something, they haven't seen anything yet. Oh, that's charming. Sylvia would respond, quote, Daniel, you have your beliefs and I have mine. I don't impose them on you, so please don't impose yours on me. Jerry the Peddler, a local squatter and community leader, called him a classic nut. Quote, he had all the symptoms. He had sudden fits of rage. He had delusions of grandeur. He didn't like touching people. He had fantasy followers. He was constantly going up to women, constantly. He never seemed to pick up that many. Mm-hmm. I should probably say now that this gets really graphic. I'm waiting. I was waiting for the, the trigger <laughs> I, warning. I meant, yeah. I mean, if you don't like really graphic descriptions of awful things most foul then this is not the episode for you all right Uh, daniel grew up in rockport texas and became convinced he was a god when he was five years old his parents tried putting him in a psych ward he was put on ritalin and given shock treatments 
He never forgave his parents for this and was essentially estranged from his family when he made his way to New York in 1985. He was a well-known figure around the park. He tried to start a cult in a squat on Suffolk Street. His plan was to have five children with each of 25 women so he could create his master race. But he had a hard time finding converts. It's funny until it's not. I'm just going to giggle for a while and then be horrified. Continue. Uh, and are you sensing a theme a little bit? Anyway. What, of, of that people who are murderers are crazy? Mm-hmm. Oh, anyway. within Daniel is there Within Daniel, yeah. Yeah, well, clearly there's a theme. Right. But I don't want to say anything in case it ruins your, your flow. All right. Continue. So, in late July 1989, so a couple weeks, two weeks after Daniel moved in with Sylvia and Sean, they broke up. And Sean moved out. Sylvia decided she wanted to leave the city and change the lease over to Daniel. But when the lease changed hands, the rent would go up to $605 a month. Also, there's some concern that the landlord wouldn't be so thrilled with Daniel, this skinny, bearded, long-haired drifter man. Oh, dear. Um, Maybe he wouldn't want him on the lease. So they found Monica Birrell to be his new roommate, pay half the rent, and take over the lease. Monica was a 26-year-old modern dancer from Switzerland who studied at the Martha Graham School and danced at Billy's Topless. One friend said of her, quote, she was a pretty smart girl, pretty professional, and had had a good head on her shoulders. She wasn't stupid. She wasn't crazy. So Monica moved in the first week of August. Sylvia was still really close with Daniel and helped him clean the place up for Monica. And when she moved in, it was immaculate and everything seemed to be going well. Monica and Daniel both reported to Sylvia that they had slept together once. (laughs) Oh, God. Monica acted like it wasn't a big deal. But Daniel, according to Sylvia, fell in love. And when Monica called off their sexual relationship almost immediately and proceeded to bring other men back to the apartment, Daniel was very upset. Monica's friends were alarmed by Daniel's jealous behavior and encouraged her to kick him out. After all, she was on the lease now. Daniel was panicked. He begged her not to throw him out. Quote, I have nowhere to go. It was around this time that Daniel started telling everyone he knew that he was going to kill Monica. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I got to say, this is part of the story. He told everyone he was going to do it. Everyone. And they all knew the same people. And no one took him seriously. I mean, maybe because he was kind of acted like a kook or whatever, but no one took him seriously. Oh, God. Okay. On August 12th, Sylvia told Monica, quote, Daniel said he's going to kill you. Oh, good on Sylvia. Okay. This is a quote from Sylvia. And she just kind of laughed. Monica just kind of laughed. And she went up to Daniel in front of me and said to Daniel, I'll kill you first. Oh, girl. So oh, no. also Monica was also not taking this very seriously. Oh, Monica. On Thursday, August 17th, Daniel walked Sylvia to the PATH train and told her he couldn't take Monica anymore, and he planned to kill her on Friday. He asked Sylvia to come back to the city to help him get rid of the body. Sylvia said, quote, 
Daniel, are you crazy? I ain't going to help you with anything. And he was really nervous, and he was so terrified of being homeless. Sylvia didn't get back to the city until Saturday night. Quote, I could see from the street that the apartment was dark, and I knew something was wrong, but I went up there anyway. I was coming up the stairs, and I heard Daniel's TV, and it was really loud, and I opened the door, and his TV was in the kitchen, and it was very dim. I went back to my room to make sure my stuff was okay, because I told him I was leaving it there for a while till I got it all out, and Monica's door was closed, and I went and knocked on Monica's door, and nobody answered. So I went to the kitchen, and on the stove there was a pot. And in the pot was Monica's head. Oh, God. (laughs) She was all burnt up and her eyes were closed. Mm. Then Sylvia peeked into the bathroom. It's like he seared her first and then put her... Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Then Sylvia peeked into the bathroom and saw a rib cage in the tub and hightailed it out of there. She went to a phone booth on Avenue A. Did she see Daniel in the apartment? No, Daniel was not there. Oh, my God. So she goes to a phone booth on Avenue A and called Daniel's beeper. He met her in the park and told her what happened. He said, Monica told him Friday night that if he wasn't out in the morning, she had a friend with a pit bull who was going to get him out. So he went up behind her and, with an extension cord, strangled her with a cord and then with his hands. Then he stomped on her head 10 times and stabbed her over 30 times. Then he used her chest as a carving board. He said he ate her brains. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So Sylvia has this conversation with Daniel in the park. A few days later, you heard me right. A few days later, Sylvia ran into Daniel again. Wait, so Sylvia, did Sylvia give any um, input on her, I don't know, her process at that moment. She liked Daniel a lot, and she didn't think that it was going to be in his best interest to be arrested. Okay, so she's a nutball as well. Okay. Okay. Not to be judgy. Not to be judgy, (laughs) but let's judge. (laughs) All right, go ahead. A few Days later, Sylvia ran into Daniel again, and he said it was starting to smell in the apartment. Oh, what a shock. Sylvia warned him that if he didn't clean it up, he'd be put in a psychiatric hospital. A couple days after that, Daniel invited Sylvia over. This is the part that I remember. (laughs) He said everything was clean, and it was, except that Monica's skull was there. Quote, She looks more beautiful than ever, Daniel said. Then he got angry and spit on it and said, Well, hey, bitch, at least you'll always have a home. (gasps) Oh, God, this is so Buffalo Bill. This is so wrong. Sylvia told him she'd never turn him in. She even slept over at the apartment a few nights. She was worried people wouldn't understand Daniel. He had been abused as a child. And really, he was in a prison of his own mind. It wouldn't help to lock him up. Sean, you remember Sean, Sylvia's ex-boyfriend? Oh, yeah. He dropped by on August 22nd to buy some pot, and he smelled the death. And there was a rumor floating around the park. Uh Uh-huh. Quote, he fed her to the homeless, said Frank, an East Fifth Street resident. 
the homeless in the park were going, yeah, Daniel gave us soup yesterday, and they were goofing on it, but they were pretty much grossed out. But no one turned him in. It wasn't until Daniel moved out of the apartment to live with a woman uptown that Sean tipped off the building super. Detectives browbeat Sylvia into spilling the beans, and five hours later, they arrested Daniel and he confessed. He told the detective, I need some help. He then led police to the Port Authority storage area where he had stashed her bones. Oh, my God. In 1991, Daniel Rakowitz was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And in 2004, a jury found him to be no longer dangerous, but still mentally ill, and determined he should remain at the Kirby Forensic Center on Ward's Island, where he is to this day. Sylvia told the Village Voice, People are going to think I'm crazy. You know what? Daniel did what Daniel did because of what society had done to Daniel. I hope this opens people's eyes to the fear people have of being homeless, especially when they do have some type of mental illness. Well, that's a new kind of outreach. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to boil the skin right off your bones, eat it, and then be like, oh, by the way, it's a social problem. (laughs) There's this strange, like, I mean, what's up with Sylvia? No, Sylvia is an accomplice. Sylvia is clearly an accomplice. I want to know why she was not um, prosecuted as like an accessory after the fact or or an accomplice. I mean, she she heard he's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. She told uh, maybe that's why she's not because she told Monica, but Monica can't testify to that. So who knows? No. There does seem to be this uh, naivete about mental illness, like oh, he's just kind of a kook. No one actually thought he was going to do anything about it. And now I think if we met anyone who talked in that way, we would be like, hmm, we just can't predict how that person's going to behave. And that person absolutely does need some help immediately. Well, funny you should say that because I was reading something recently and I think it was research for this podcast, but I can't recall because you know, I have memory problems. But with that in mind, <laughs> I read something about, oh my God, I think I even talked about it on this show. Good Lord, Meg. My Things are not good in this <laughs> in this sector. About the way that um, uh, forensic psychiatrists had been um, developing their area their, of, of practice, their, their skill sets and understanding why people, oh, yes, I remember, I was talking about this with John Lennon, that they were figuring out where people were likely to be killed rather than who the killers were. Uh But did you ever see Mindhunter? Yes. Okay. Such a great show. So, you know, Mindhunter- And of course, I've read the book that it's based on. And I'm sure you can shed more light than I can. But the, so that was happening only like a decade before what you're describing as this naivete letting this Mm -hmm. nutbag run amok. And think about how much we've learned societally about criminal... The criminally insane. I was trying to come up... It sounded so Batman in my head. And I was like, is that the right phrase? Yes. The criminally insane. Pretty amazing. It really is. 
And I also think perhaps if you had met Daniel in any other part of the city, it might have set off alarms. But there was something about this particular community of people that was very accepting of eccentricity in a way that it, it, it acted as a cover for what was ultimately something very dangerous. Well, I agree. But there's also, you know, people are taught to not listen to their gut. Oh, that's so true. And women particularly are taught, well, traditionally we're taught, do not listen to your gut. You know, uh, if someone says that they're a nice person, let them in. So I think that that's a contributor to this. Like, you know, someone says he's going to kill you to your face. What could possibly motivate you to say, ha ha? It's because you have no um, faith in, in your fight or flight you're overreacting he's a he's harmless Well, think about all the cops that you've talked about who have been like don't worry your husband's just gone out for a pack of cigarettes he'll be right back to murder you You know like there's culturally yes it was you you don't worry your pretty little head don't worry your and because you're a woman you're most likely an hysteric Right. And right. so you're hysterical, you're overreacting, you're you're blowing this out of proportion. What are some of the other fun phrases? Don't be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I also I'm the fact that Sylvia is so eager to come up with reasons why he would do something so horrific and borderline blaming the victim troubled me. Well, as well, I think she sounds like she has been I mean, number one, she sounds like a banana. So she's got some cuckoo kachoo going on in her skull as well who knows skull what skull at least she still has a skull in her brain pan um she's got some chemicals she's let's just say she's neurally atypical in some way she's also so quick with all of these you know abuse and you know whatever he was abused as a child yeah she probably was identifying with him. She was probably projecting and empathizing. She, Sylvia, look, Sylvia had a homeless man come into her house and she stayed there and did all of the things that she did. She was also a Tompkins Square Park resident. Mm-hmm. She was a banana. Like, let's just face it. Like, yeah. Sylvia, not a good bellwether of any kind. Right. Like, but I think there are a lot of Sylvia's running around. I couldn't agree with you more, which is why I stay in my apartment all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you are kind of looking forward to this story. So I, I, I hope that I gave you all the grisly details you are looking forward to. You know what's to. really weird? So, you know, you've you've done many stories where I've been like crawling under the desk and mm-hmm. having a heart. I love this story so much. You are so hard to predict. I know. And I've been thinking, like, why is it? And I think it's because I think about it cinematically. And the movie that that rolls in my head is it's there there's an absurdity to it it's ridiculous that he's like hi i'm going to do this just boiling up some soup <laughs> going to feed it to the homeless like it's so like he just outdoes himself at every turn and it makes like the Gwyneth Paltrow head in the box in seven. Oh God, I look hate like, that movie. Look like child's play, right? Because yeah. he's like, 
I may have severed the head, but then I'm going to boil it, and then I'm going to display the skull, then I'm going to spit on the skull. Like, it's right. so fucking nuts <laughs> that it's, it, I think it delights me because it, it packs everything in. It's like the old Prego spaghetti sauce ad. Right. It's in there. And he does not walk amongst us, thank goodness, but he is just, you know, a mere half a mile away on Ward's Island. I'm frightened that you're going to start to become an amateur uh, forensic psychiatrist and you're going to start visiting these cuckoo birds. Never. Oh, so you're you're clear that from afar is the best. Oh, as far as possible. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the fact that they're like, he's still kind of crazy, but he's probably not dangerous. Like, that's what they were saying in the park about this guy. I do not trust any of you people. Keep him on Ward's Island. (laughs) Lock him up. Uh, Yeah, it's, um, yeah, Meg, I love this story so much. And maybe it's also that I can imagine, like, I know exactly what Pumpkin Square Park looked like at the time. Okay, Jessica, what you got? All right, I have an engagement question for you. Okay, I'm ready. When we were in high school, what kind of coat did you wear? Coat? Um, I mean, the coat that comes to mind, I wore a pea coat, mm-hmm. and I uh, inherited a big black wool coat from my dad, which was amazing, and I left it in the Natural History Museum. It broke my friggin' heart. You dummy. I know. It was the worst thing ever. I, imme- I immediately realized I had left it behind, and it wasn't... Five minutes, somebody had snatched it up. Well, I'm glad that you said that that was the coat, because that's that's where we're going today. We're oh. going to talk about vintage clothing. Okay. And the role that vintage clothing has played in the style of New York, and how the style of New York has affected style across the world. But here we go. So I had a really disturbing experience a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I decided to go looking for some vintage clothing because, as you know, I collect uh, vintage clothing, and I'm beautiful very, vintage clothing. I'm very interested in uh, like 1900 through 1950. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my era. So I, you know, decided to go downtown, and there are some stores I hadn't heard of before. I thought, oh, you know, this is great. Do you know what they're selling? What? All of these vintage stores. What? Clothing from the 80s and 90s. Well, I do know that because Alice, my daughter, thrifts and she comes home with things that look like they would at the, be at the bottom of my drawer like 30 years ago. Yeah, I was ago. wearing some Chanel flats that I had inherited from my mother, like basic ball- ballet flats. And I was stopped in the store by multiple young people who are like, oh my God, those are so like, and I'm like, these are the fustiest old lady <laughs> shoes that have ever been like, what are you talking about? It's like the shoes, remember the like the Papagallo flats yeah. that the Nightingale administrators used to wear? It was at that level. And I was like, oh my God, I don't even know what's happening. But I was thinking about what vintage was when we were in high school mm-hmm. and how it really created a look for us and and for our fellow Gen Xers. Hmm. Does this ring? Yeah, I would say what was vintage in our day was kind of like the Terry Gar character in After Hours. Describe. 
for those uh, who don't know. Beehive haircut, 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, 50s and 60s tool. That was kind of vintage-y. Like yeah. what, what Molly Ringwald's character had going on in Pretty in Pink with the 50s prom dress from her friend. Yeah. Who, you know, and then she makes it into something. Annie yeah. Potts was her friend. Annie Potts. One of her best things she ever did was the receptionist in Ghostbusters, True. I think. And her, her unfailing uh, attraction to Harold Ramis <laughs> killed me. <laughs> yeah, so vintage. I think of the same thing. And the look for our generation when we were in high school was that everyone was in black coats. Everything was overcoats. And those black coats were from, I don't know if you're aware of this, the 30s, 40s, and 50s for the most part. So we were all flapping around in these men's coats. Yeah. That some of them were double-breasted, and they had really high-peaked lapels and, and all of that stuff. And it, it, tangentially, that was so the look. And I didn't realize that it was specific to New York or maybe Chicago as well, but definitely New York, that when I got to Kenyon in 1987... Um, I was wearing a long black coat like that, as were our other New York friends. And we would sit together in the dining hall and the other kids called us the crows. <laughs> I know. So they were not wearing that. They were not interested in that at all. That that was the neon oh, Benetton. Like poofy coats. Yeah. That like, you see pictures of. Yeah. Lots of, um, you know, like parachute pants kind of mm-hmm. day glowy thing. Anyway, so that's that's what we were into. And so I started to look at the history of vintage clothing shopping in New York City. And I was fascinated because a woman who is no longer with us, but she started one of the first big vintage clothing stores in New York City. Her name is Harriet Love. Um, and she was doing costuming for uh she did for film she did um all of the costumes for um the original 1970s great gatsby oh and was horrified when everyone went into the fountain in that scene she was like damn it those are beaded dresses (laughs) oh that was the real thing oh yeah 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 she was absolutely that is such a gorgeous movie it's beyond beautiful and she was talking about how vintage was so popular because a it was cheap but b in new york city having a sense of the theatrical is exactly right and that so many people who were living downtown who were buying vintage clothing when and it was really considered thrift slash vintage at the time they didn't have any money it was cheap and the idea of creating a costume out of your clothing was in line with how they spent their days and their evenings so that was sort of the the beginning and then in the 80s in the early 80s our friend madonna uh, opened up the world of uh of, of vintage to people who were not the crows like us i love the idea that madonna would be our friend I don't think, do you think she'd like us? Yes. I don't know. I don't think she'd like us very much. I think she'd be annoyed. (laughs) But but she just strikes me as someone who'd be annoyed a lot of the time. Yes, exactly. You know, in Desperately Seeking Susan, she goes into the 
the vintage store Love Saves the Day, where she buys her fantastic boots and gives the jacket and right. all of that stuff. Oh, Love um, Saves the Day that's closed. It's closed. You know, and that got a lot of people realizing, like, you don't have to wear something that's an outfit, like something that's like you can have your own style and cobble something together. In the 60s, people were definitely looking at Victorian stuff. And so for us, yes, it was like 30s, 40s, 50s. There was another place called Alice Underground. Do you oh, remember Oh, absolutely, that? on the west side. Yes. I still have a velvet jacket that I bought there. It's a little like 30s thing. But anyway, so vintage style, a very, very big part of New York and the New York look. When you were our age, were you buying anything vintage? If you know about Alice Underground, like what kind of things were you looking for? Absolutely. I, I kind of love that 50s dress look. So, and my body fits that well. So I was always looking for that shape. Yeah. Clothing manufacturers were not making the Gap, Benetton. They were not making dresses that shape. No. So that was exciting. So I was always, always had my eye open for those kinds of dresses. You my entire who, life still do. Well, you know who else really loved vintage and would go lurking and skulking around in the village where these shops were, where there was a lot of 20s and 30s and 40s stuff. Take a guess. Uh, Cindy Lauper? Your friend, Ralph Lauren. Oh. So if My you, friend. Your friend. If you I take, was such a illustrious friend. I know. If you take a good look at most of his designs since the 70s, really, uh, which is when he began. Most of his stuff is knocked off from vintage hmm. clothing. And my mother, who was an, she had amazing style, um, had this jacket from the 40s with these unbelievable shoulder pads. It was army green wool, and she had astrakhan uh, lapels put on it, like really amazing. It was, um, a, it was used as part of the set dressing in the Ralph Lauren uh, shop window. Ooh. Yes. And so that's, you know, another way when you think about how vintage clothing has, it has permeated sort of the, the idea of American style, mm -hmm. that's part of it. And then in the 80s as well, Vogue started looking at street fashion. And when Vogue started doing that and vintage again was you know, big black coats, giant uh, blazers. Do you remember that we wore men's tuxedo jackets? Yes, absolutely. That, and, and, and blazers, just huge, or, you know, like suit blazers or, or sport coats, and we would roll the sleeves up. And if it I was, if it was say, lined in a really good satin. Like, yeah, with a stripe or something like exactly. that. That was cool. I have an image of that. I'm sure. Yeah, no, there's no question. I was wearing stuff like that all through college, actually. Well, if you look at the runway shows from the 80s of, you know, like Yoji Yamamoto, Claude Montana, Armani, they were all doing huge jackets, huge drapey jackets. Well, the funny which thing was, back. I was just too lazy to get it tailored. I don't even think it occurred to me. So, of course, I was like walking around with something that was the size of a man. And of course, it was like falling but off. But that of was me. the look. Right. But it was also out of laziness, don't you think? But yes, but we were teenagers. What teenagers are like, I'm going to go again. Well, that's my point. Yeah. No, no, it was it was entirely um, organic mm -hmm. to the, the yes, lazy. I, I don't know if it's teenage laziness, yeah. though, because you you were so I vividly recall your look and your coat. And you always had these little cute shoes that looked 
retro. They looked like they could be from the 30s or 40s. I like Mary Janes. So yes, Ralph Lauren, Vogue. And so and what sort of makes me I'm not sad now, but I look at the way that vintage because vintage for us growing up was really about finding things. It was it was going it was like an archaeological dig. And I feel like the way that things are put together now, these stores, that Everyone knows what they have and because they're selling stuff that's so recent. I'm, of course, I think of the 80s and 90s as recent and I know that your daughter does not. But that, you know, designer labels are known and they're a big deal and they're still around. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing that's, you know, like Lillian's of Hackensack. Like <laughs> the number of <laughs> coats that have those kinds of labels in it, you know, is legion. That doesn't exist anymore. So it's like, oh, this is a Balenciaga. Oh, this is whatever. Or, and this is is just bizarre to me, concert t-shirts for like a Van Halen concert for $150. Are what? you kidding? Oh, no. There are stores downtown where they specialize in concert tees and bands that like, in a million years, no one would listen to, but it, but it, but the t-shirt looks good. So like, I'm not making this up. Like I saw a striper. Do you remember striper? I do not. They were a Christian rock band. Oh, that's not no, anything to parade it was around. Not happening. And they had like, they, they, they had obvious, like they were so literal. They had like striped black and yellow outfits it was like it got it wrong who, yeah, any no self-respecting lover of any music would ever be like <laughs> i'm gonna wear a striper shirt <laughs> that's what it's about yeah i i just sort of despair and i i wish that alice and her friends could sort of get redirected well they were really redirected exploring. into your mother's closet if you recall that is <laughs> Alice, just to give some background. Okay. Uh, When Jessica's mother passed away, she left all these beautiful vintage clothes. And my daughter went over and just had a field day and picked up, I don't know how many suitcases of stuff. And then when she got home, she started giving them away to her friends. Things that didn't quite fit exactly the way she wanted them. Other things she got tailored. I still find it shocking that my mother was the size of a 17-year-old girl, but... I'm well, gonna... but there are a lot of 17-year-old girls walking around right now in your mother's I know, clothes, I know. which this... I love. <laughs> the Sandra Dorfman collection lives on exactly. in the streets of New York. But but the stuff that, that Alice loved, for the most part, was the 90s stuff mm, and the that's 80s true. stuff. Yeah. And when I was trying to get her to take that unbelievable 40s dress with the, remember with the little sequins and all that, right. she was like, I don't get it. Yeah, well, that's more, that's like for us more than it would be for her. She doesn't dress like that, but we would at that age. I just you know what I mean? Time. Yeah, well, of course, but I think it's time for the young people to say, you know what, I'm not going to pay $150 for this snot rag of a t-shirt with, you know, David Lee Roth leap and no bones. I mean, seriously, David, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, like, ugh. Give me a break, $150. Take that $150 and go find a white Edwardian dress and chop it up and do something cool to it because it it pains me. New York's New York's status as a style of a, a hub of style, not the fashion industry, style mm, mm-hmm. uh, has diminished 
so radically, in my opinion. Jessica, you sound a little bit like a, I'm a cranky old lady. Yes, I am. Old woman shakes fist at cloud. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I am. I'm leaning into these whippersnappers don't know good quality. They they feel the fabric and they don't understand what a good schmata is. But there's some days when I'm just kind of like, I need my reading glasses and a hairnet because I'm just cranky and I'm going to stay in my apartment so no one boils my head. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a good thing. Was that our crossover? What, my crankiness and not wanting to have my head boiled? Yeah, boiled head. I don't well, know. I don't know. Is like vintage hat boiled head. I know. Is that where we're going? <laughs> no, I think we can find it. I think we can. Well, you know what it is? What? All of those great vintage shops were in the East Village. Oh, yes. Not so, all of them, but not a all whole of them, but a lot a of whole, them. Love saves the day for sure. Yes, a whole lot of them were down there and still are. Yes, and I'm quite sure that what oh my god, what was our murderer's name again? Daniel. Daniel. That Daniel and his friends were walking around in clothing that we would probably kill for right now. Oh, very well done, Jessica. Oh, I'm proud so of much. you. Thank you. That's the crossover. <laughs>